being acquitted of impeachment, Donald Trump gives a State of the Union address where the reactions of others seem to matter more than the contents of the speech itself. Did anything good come from the speech? Also, we go back to 2020 land. The Iowa caucuses are over, but not without much confusion. Buttigieg leads, Sanders follows, while Warren and Biden trail both of them. Who is likely to become the next president of the United States, and how do caucus results play into that answer? We'll answer all that and more in episode number 121 of the Jay Dory Podcast. Jay Doherty podcast. And now, broadcasting live from downtown Chicago, here's your host, Jay Doherty. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Jay Doherty podcast. This is episode number 121 on Sunday, February 9th, 2020. It's 12.02 uh, as we come on the air right now. Broadcasting live and recording on the podcast. Of course, there's so much news to talk about. I apologize for not uh, being existent on this platform of media uh, last week. I did have strep throat, so I was not able to do a podcast, which I was very disappointed about. But we are back here, and we have so much to talk about. Uh, Donald Trump was acquitted this week. There was a State of the Union address, uh, and also things are heating up in the 2020 race, so incredibly busy week, and actually generally for the president, in terms of support, a very good week. He, uh, in both congressional support and voter support, so we'll talk about uh, what happened there. We'll begin with the Donald Trump being acquitted in the Senate, so we knew this was coming, so after quite the process in both the House and the Senate, Donald Trump has been acquitted. And that's simply the end of the story. Uh, we talk. If you want to hear all of my impeachment thoughts, I don't want to go re-repeat them over and over and over again. But if you want to hear them, you can go to um, the past, the previous two episodes of this podcast. The Washington Post puts it very well. Democrats fell short of the two-thirds majority required to remove Trump from office as senators voted 52 to 48 to acquit him on the abuse of power allegation and N50 and 53 to 47 to clear him of obstruction. Uh, and, and Mitt Romney was the only one that broke with his party to vote uh, for Trump's impeachment. He said that, uh, and this is sort of surprising, and in, uh, I mean, Democrats now are sort of taking Romney's side, which is really interesting considering they wanted him to basically just stop talking in 2012 because he was theoretically... The most, the most charismatic. Uh, I mean, uh, not compared maybe to Barack Obama, but very, very good Republican candidate. Uh, just you know, laid out very clear policies. And uh, back in those days, and now he is basically breaking with his own party. The Washington Post says the outcome represented a political triumph for the White House and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who successfully held together nearly the entire GOP caucus in blocking witnesses or additional evidence from the proceedings. Mitt Romney of Utah, just one Republican, voted to convict the president of abuse of power. The third impeachment trial of the U.S. president of a president in U.S. history concluded one of the most bitter episodes in recent memory in Washington, marked by partisan fighting over what constitutes a fair trial, furious debates over the propriety of Trump's dealings with Ukraine, and outsized pressure on a small core of Republican senators who held considerable sway in whether the trial would subpoena key witnesses from the Trump administration who had defied calls uh, to appear before the House during its investigation. So, that's basically where where we ended and that is how he was acquitted. I mean in in a democrat controlled house they can pass any I mean if they have the votes which Nancy Pelosi uh, you know allowed them to have or convinced them to have if 
there was any doubt to begin with. Uh, they passed it through the House into the Senate. The Senate is Republican, and they knew because De- Trump has such high support within many Republican communities, generally only because of the economy. I mean, a lot of his voters actually don't... I mean, if you watch uh, the the ABC News 30, um, 30 Hours with the President interview, and they go into small towns, and they ask his supporters, what's the best thing about Donald Trump and what's the worst thing? Generally, I'm sort of par- paraphrasing here. The best thing, the economy, right? I mean, if the economy works, then you're going to get votes, and that's sort of how this works in, in most countries. Uh, especially on a grand scale like America. The worst thing, they say, is the tweets, the the rhetoric. If he quit using his rhetoric and stopped using, just put down Twitter, I mean, his approval ratings uh, would probably jump 10%. Here's John Roberts actually doing the deed, acquitting President Trump formally, reading the script. On this article of impeachment, 47 senators have pronounced Donald John Trump, President of the United States, guilty as charged. Fifty-three senators have pronounced him not guilty as charged. Two-thirds of the senators present not having pronounced him guilty. The Senate adjudges that respondent Donald John Trump, President of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the second article of impeachment. The presiding officer directs judgment to be entered in accordance with the judgment of the Senate as follows. The Senate, having tried Donald John Trump, President of the United States, upon two articles of impeachment, exhibited against him by the House of Representatives, and two-thirds of the senators present not having found him guilty of the charges contained therein. It is, therefore, ordered and adjudged that the said Donald John Trump be, and he is hereby, acquitted of the charges in said articles. Okay, so that that's just the beginning, right? The reaction is how... Uh, what really matters in all this, especially from uh, the Republicans and obviously the Democrats as well. So there's very little reaction, or at least non-celebratory reaction, uh, from Republicans, uh, I mean, except for maybe Mitt Romney. Uh, as we talked about on episode number 120, the lawyers of Mr. Trump are Pat Cipollone, he's the White House lawyer, uh, Jay Sekulow, Trump's other personal attorney, not, not uh, Rudy Giuliani. There's also Alan Dershowitz, who is brought in. Mike Tyson, uh, he, he's represented Mike Tyson's and, to, and other high-profile sort of uh, always representing the controversial uh, people, uh, Mr. Dershowitz. There's actually a really interesting uh, documentary that was just recently put out. We'll have it linked on the website in the show notes if you want to go listen to it. And then also Kenneth Starr, the former independent counsel during the Clinton days of impeachment. And they sort of knew that this was, that, you know, Trump was going to be acquitted because it is a Republican uh, Senate. But they still made arguments, and so did the Democrats. The Democrats have the noisy reactions, obviously, as any party would, as any opposing party would in terms of impeachment. The House managers, uh, the prosecution in this case, or at least the ones making all the noise, are Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff. Now, I'm not a huge fan of saying that all that matters in a trial, especially one of such a grand scale as impeachment, are the verdict and the closing statement. But in effect, uh, that is really all that matters when the outcome is, in Adam Schiff's words, pre-cooked. And that is, in th- this entire trial was the epitome of pre-cooked. And lots of reaction from both sides, particularly the Democrats. Um, and, and a lot of it came during the State of the Union address. I just want to say, before I get into any of this, that no matter how many lies, misleading facts, or stupidity that Donald Trump regularly spews, that this speech that he delivered was most assuredly not written by him, but it was phenomenal. It was extremely well written. So, very well done to, this, to the speechwriters, and maybe for Trump for actually sticking to the teleprompter. 
I mean, like, you know, Trump was not actually too crazy during this isolated incident, no matter, I mean, you know, regardless of the facts. I'm saying his demeanor, the way he presented himself during the speech itself, not before, not after, and, I mean, like, literally not before, as in three minutes before, and um, with him not shaking hand, Nancy Pelosi's hand, but, you know, that's, I mean, the, the speech was incredibly well written, extremely uh, akin to Reagan, uh, so yeah. Uh, the problem in this country, though, the the general problem, is that this this Congress and the radical sides of each party have such a mutual disgust for one another that is impo- that it is impossible to actually do anything impactful. In this in this case, especially with impeachment, most of it has to do with the before and after of the speech and the Democrats' reaction during the speech. Because we have to remember that this State of the Union address is just like a forced pomp and circumstance that the president is almost mandated to do out of tradition. In fact, he is. And I'm not a big fan of forced tradition generally, uh, but the point of the speech is to disconnect from politics, right? That, that's what it's been since the past, for the past hundreds of years. And sort of the other, the other idea is to receive a status update on the unity of our country. And, and thanks to Trump and others' reactions to Trump, the country is the farthest thing from unified. In terms of reaction from from the Democrats, it was partisan as to be expected, but almost to a fault. I think everyone should stand when any president, no matter their party, has accomplished something that benefits the entire country uh, without any room for subjectivity. For example, even though on a social level Trump is an absolute buffoon, the economy is actually doing really, really well, and wages are stable, and overall, on a purely economic level, the country is uh, doing quite well. Now, we cannot you know, attribute all of that success, or most of it, to Trump, because lots of his policy on China has been rooted in fallacy, or at least in the early days, but overall, uh, you know, internationally and and domestically, the economy is doing pretty well. The problem, though, is how utterly tense it was in that room, in that House chamber, and to be honest, most of that was congressional Democrats' fault, or at least the ones that, that really, really did not, were just perturbed by Trump's existence at that podium. Now, by no means is an irregularity to have sleepy faces and annoyed looks, uh, you know, when the president of an opposite political party is talking uh, at a State of the Union address, but I can confidently say that there has never been, at least from what I've seen, and I was going back looking at previous State of the Union addresses before this episode, I can confidently say that there has never been more of a contentious State of the Union address in probably the past decade. And the thing... The, the, the address started out with, with the House Sergeant-at-Arms announcing Trump, that's the tradition, and then Trump walks in, he hands copies of his speech to both Mike Pence, uh, the, the Vice President, who also presides over the Senate, and Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, who, who presides over the House, who, of course, they, they sit behind him during the entire speech, so you can see their reactions. And uh, you can just, I mean, I highly recommend, if you haven't seen it already, watch the speech, see how the format works, but Trump does not shake either of their hands even though Nancy Pelosi notably extended hers. Now, there are different angles that will show you different sides of this. The one that that the media has been playing is sort of deceptive. If you look at the center shot, Trump doesn't even shake Pence's hand, and he doesn't really even make eye contact with either of them. So I'm not going to defend him. I think he should have went out of his way to shake both of their hands to show unity. I mean, that's just, I mean, really, both of their hands should have been shaken. But it was off to a rough start. Nancy Pelosi said that she didn't really care that Trump didn't shake her hand, even though she notably extended hers. She said this at a recent press conference that she holds uh, regular, and this was days after the State of the Union address. So, again, I extended the hand of friendship to him, 
to welcome him as the President of the United States to the People's House was also an act of kindness because he looked to me like he was a little sedated. He looked that way last year, too. So, but he didn't want to shake hands. That was that. That meant nothing to me. It had nothing to do with my tearing up. That that came much later. And, you know, a speed reader. I just went right through that thing. Okay, so she's sort of uh, foreshadowing into what I'm going to talk about in a second here. Uh, but that was just the beginning. Man. The lack of handshake was just the beginning of, of uh, lack of union, let's just say, put it nicely. So normally with these sorts of things, uh, and again, this is going back to the pomp and circumstance of these events, the House Speaker, even if it is a Republican introducing a Democrat or the other way around, they will say, quote, it is my high priv privilege and distinct honor to welcome the President of the United States or something like that. Uh, but, but that did not happen this time. Nancy Pelosi literally just said, Members of Congress, the President of the United States. So to provide some evidence to support my claim about, you know, previous formalities in these sorts of addresses, here is Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan introducing Democrat Barack Obama in his most recent State of the Union address. And again, in, in, in all of Barack Obama's State of the Union address, I think I'm 99.99999% sure that in all of Bush's, hands were always shaken, there was no, you know, cheap shots thrown at anyone. This is really where it's starting uh, to get cheap. And Paul Ryan, very, very conservative uh, House Speaker at one point, said this when he was uh, introducing Barack Obama during, his, uh, during Barack Obama's final uh, State of the Union address. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and the distinct honor of presenting to you the President of the United States. And, and everyone claps there, right? I mean, these are all a bunch of cheap shots that, that Trump and, and uh, Pelosi are having against one, of, uh, one another. But the one that is really getting a lot of attention was when, at the end of the speech, Pelosi ripped up her copy of, of, the, of the address when he finished it. So this is just another stunt, a Washington stunt. It further destroys the Democrats' case for 2020, and it really makes both sides look like babies. Uh, like, they literally hate each other so much that they have to avoid physical contact and exert physical dominance over others' property. I mean, you know, and I, I reference... Uh, the lack of handshakes in the speech tearing. Uh, anyway, uh, Trump was sort of uh, enervated by these existences, and he responded to Pelosi's act actions, saying that they were illegal. Well, I thought it was a terrible thing when she ripped up the speech. First of all, it's an official document. You're not allowed. It's illegal what she did. She broke the law. So... It's actually not true. Um, there, there was there were a lot of conservative pundits out there saying that what she did broke the law, but. Uh, there are people saying that's potentially illegal, that it may be illegal. I don't think it's illegal. I mean, uh, no one's going to uh, prosecute her for that. Uh, but according to legal analysts, you know, it's, it's just not actually illegal. Nancy Pelosi uh, did not back off. She did not say that it was, you know, something I regret doing. She doubled down, rather, on her actions, saying that she felt liberated after ripping his speech up, referring, at to, referring to the speech as, the, as his state-of-the-mind address. So I knew what was coming when I saw the compilation of falsehoods, and, but then when I heard like the first quarter or third, I, then I started to think there has to be something uh, that clearly indicates to the American people that this is not the truth. And uh, he has shredded the truth in his speech. He's shredding the Constitution in his conduct. I shredded his state of his mind address. Thank you all very much. Okay, so that was in her press conference. Just amazing, the way that this whole works, uh, this whole thing works. I mean, like, the conduct of Washington is just very, very amusing. It's gone to a point, as I said, where both sides just looked look like babies. 
so we're going to get to the contents of the speech and others' reactions to it more in a second. But first, did you know that you can listen to specific topics of this podcast on The Doherty Files? The Doherty Files is a totally free website that I created where I post archived content in a news-formatted way. I make sure everything I post is labeled as uh, perspective when it is subjective and labeled as otherwise when it is objective. That is a rarity these days. So for a totally free and more narrow selection of archive context, content on this podcast, The Weekly File, and more, visit thedohertyfiles.com today to learn more for free. So in my opinion, if Trump were all teleprompter and no Twitter, full-time in his presidency, and only read what his staff writes him kind of guy, then his approval ratings and perhaps his poll numbers would jump would jump dramatically. In other words, if Trump, minus all the lies, spoke as confidently and wholesomely as he did last night, in addition to the growing economy, uh, then moderate Republicans and centrist independents would be much more inclined to flock towards him in an election. Now, that is not to say that the speech was unusually true, because it wasn't. It was full of misleading statistics and facts, as we've seen from presidents since the dawn of American civilization on that stage. But the structure, the, the comportment, and the delivery was really well done. And there's absolutely no way that Trump wrote any more than maybe 10% of that speech himself. And that's probably giving him 10% more than I should be giving him credit for. Uh, but that is where... He stands. Uh, during the speech itself, he made no direct mention of 2020 candidates or, you know, immediate attacks on democratic socialism, even though it's being analyzed. And I agree with the fact that or with the, the opinion that this is uh, that his speech was very much a an election grabbing sort of campaign speech that was in the formal uh, sort of mask of the State of the Union. Um but yeah, he did not make any mention of 2020 candidates or immediate attacks on democratic socialism, but his speechwriters instead worked it in a very, very cleverly by tying Venezuela, a country that has felt the unbearable wrath of socialism with massive food shortages, you know, a corrupt leader, uh, and the functional, functional equivalent of anarchy in the streets. But Trump invited the rightful leader of Venezuela, Juan Guaido, to the State of the Union address, which is a really, really smart move, in my opinion, but was even smarter of his speechwriters was how he threw a little bit of shade at Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren because they're proposing socialist sort of solutions to uh, improving the economy and creating uh, equality throughout uh, the nation. And, uh, you know, in in their 2020 race, we'll talk about that more in a second. Uh, But even Nancy Pelosi clapped when he attacked socialism, attacked Maduro, and celebrated Guaido. We are supporting the hopes of Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans to restore democracy. The United States is leading a 59-nation diplomatic coalition against the socialist dictator of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro. (laughs) Maduro is an illegitimate ruler, a tyrant who brutalizes his people. But Maduro's grip on tyranny will be smashed and broken. Here this evening, It's a very brave man who carries with him the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of all Venezuelans. Joining us in the gallery is the true and legitimate president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido. Mr. President, please take this message back to you. Thank you, Mr. President. Great honor. Thank you very much. Please take this message back that all Americans are united with the Venezuelan people in their righteous struggle for freedom. Thank you very much, Mr. President. So you see how he he subtly attacks socialism there? I mean, that was a very smart move on behalf of his speechwriters, because if he had written the speech, I mean, it would all be basically all of his tweets of 2019 combined with a little bit of transition words (laughs) put between. 
Uh, so all this support for, uh, you know, Trump's stupidity combined with the foolishness of the far left has had an inverse effect on the far left because uh, it has boosted Trump's ego and his support numbers through the roof. And Trump has been celebrating ever since he was acquitted uh, and after the State of the Union address. Uh, it's important to know that he did not celebrate during the State of the Union address, notably, he went to the National Prayer Breakfast and spoke for about 40 minutes, normally, or maybe 35, uh, or 30, uh, but presidents normally speak about five, but he spoke for, you know, eh, sizable, probably six times that. Uh, he held up a big USA Today newspaper with the headline, Acquitted, on it, and that really boosted the ego of him and the persistence of his diehard supporters, which is, I mean, rightfully so. Uh, in their mind, Trump is sort of a strong man who has been beaten down by the corrupt opposition when the reality is that Trump is sort of an insecure bully who is being attacked by the wholly misrepresented Democratic Party. Uh, this national prayer breakfast is just sort of another pomp tradition in, in Washington. That's why this episode is called The Pomp, because there's so many sort of formalities that exist in, in this early month of February. Um, so... Yeah, it's sort of a thing that you have to attend. That's what presidents have done for a while. Trump was pretty tired during it. I actually felt, I mean, like I was watching the speech, his voice sounded a little bit raspy. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, anyway, the, the left has put together this funny compilation of the differences between Obama and Trump. This one is from Jimmy Kimmel, and it shows the oft the off-script banter of Donald Trump compared to the scripted solemnity of President Obama during these uh, prayerful events. And this is all, you know, ABC, Jimmy Kimmel, get all the credit. And you can actually go watch the entire compilation at j-story.com slash Kimmel, so too. Let us pray to God that we may be worthy of the many blessings he has bestowed upon our nation. They hired a big, big movie star, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to take my place. And we know how that turned out. Sometimes we talk about respect, but we don't act with respect towards each other. When they impeach you for nothing, uh, then you're supposed to like them. It's not easy, folks. I'm not alone in my success. I succeed because others succeed with me. And sometimes they hate people. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm trying to learn. It's not easy. I believe that the starting point of faith is some doubt. Not, not being so full of yourself and so confident that you are right and, and that God speaks only to us. And for those of you that are interested in stocks, it looks like the stock market will be way up again today. Okay, so, I mean, it's just funny. I, I wanted to share that with you because I thought that was really, really funny. Um, yeah, that's from Jimmy Kimmel, and the, I mean, I, I don't think that's totally accurate. He did sort of have a little bit of teleprompter interaction at that speech, but uh, yeah, uh, just very funny to see him put side by side. And Trump also celebrated at the White House as well, uh, and he held up the a headline from the Washington Post, which read, uh, just Trump acquitted and very amusingly said it's the only good headline I've ever had in the Washington Post. <laughs> so that was fun. I mean, as a part of his celebration, Trump also attack the House managers, no surprise, uh, again, basically saying that they are terrible human beings beyond the scope of politics. He was really mad that day. It was the same day that he held up that Trump acquitted uh, line from the Washington Post. They're vicious and mean. Vicious. These people are vicious. Adam Schiff is a vicious, horrible person. Nancy Pelosi is a horrible person. And she wanted to impeach a long time ago when she said, 
I pray for the president. I pray for the president. She doesn't pray. She may pray, but she prays for the opposite. But I doubt she prays at all. Okay, so he's crazy. I mean, he goes on these these attacks that are just, ex, you know, excruciatingly amusing. Um, and, you know, that's sort of a, that's a juxtaposition in what I'm saying. But, I mean, that's sort of the best way to, that I can put it, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I mean, Washington, saying, saying this sort of thing, like, I doubt that this person prays and they're both in high offices. I mean, that's just sort of unheard of until now. Uh, so it's sort of crazy. Ten years ago, totally unheard of. You would not hear that whatsoever. So that's where impeachment. That is where um, the Democratic candidates or the, the the Democratic reaction to the State of the Union address stands. Very very interesting times. We're probably going to hear a lot more attacks from uh, Trump. And I'm, I'm really interested to see what the next thing will be. I don't know if it'll be from Trump. I don't know if it'll be from uh, the Democrats again. I mean, it was first the Mueller report. Now it's the Ukraine impeachment. He was totally fine on both of those. So what will be the next thing? That's what we're going to look for in the future. But coming up next, we're going to talk about the Iowa caucuses in 2020. It was quite the snafu. Uh, and it was pretty, pretty confusing at the time. We're going to talk about all of that and more coming up next on episode number 121 of the Jay Doherty podcast. This is the Jay Doherty podcast. Listen to the Jay Doherty podcast on iTunes at j-doherty.com slash iTunes. Welcome back, everyone. This is Jay Doherty podcast, episode number 121, Sunday, February 9th, 2020. It's 12.31 p.m. We come back. Wow, lots to talk about in 2020 land. The Iowa caucuses happened, but not without much confusion at all, and that's putting it lightly. We'll talk about the supposed technical glitch that occurred, but first, we'll talk about how well each candidate performed and how that will play into the eventual outcome of the election. So as of now, and we have to keep in mind with this snafu that happened, the technical glitch, and the DNC calling for a re-canvassing of votes, the results of the caucus may change after you listen uh, to this fine episode of the podcast. But as of now, Pete Buttigieg leads with 13 delegates, 26.2% of the caucus. Uh, Bernie Sanders is next, 26.1%. So, and then Elizabeth Warren behind him, 18%. Joe Biden, 15.8%. Amy Klobuchar, 12.3%. And Andrew Yang, a stunning 1%. Mike Bloomberg didn't even qualify for it either. So, and uh, neither did Tom Steyer. So, or he got 0%. So that's pretty interesting. We'll talk about what all that means. But first, did you know that the Jay Doherty podcast is on iHeartRadio? If you go to the jdoherty.com slash iHeart or download the iHeartRadio app on your phone, you'll be able to listen to the podcast from the podcast form of the show for free. All you have to do is uh, go to jdoherty.com slash iHeart or look up the Jay Doherty podcast on the app. All right, so the winners of the caucus uh, in the debate, Pete Buttigieg, he's the winner of the entire thing. Um, and you might not be asking why. Why in Iowa? Why does he have so much support? Because 92.1% of the people who live in Iowa are white and a bunch of other stuff too. So the argument I've heard from um, conservative pundits about Pete Buttigieg is that this guy is a super progressive uh, sort of facade trying to steal votes that would, in theory, have gone to Joe Biden and transfer them over to his campaign. But my theory, which may be totally off, is that Buttigieg is just sort of an, an Obama-type, moderately progressive Democrat who feels the need to appeal to the vocal minority of radical leftists for the purpose of getting millennial votes. He tries to distance himself from Barack Obama, even though many of the values that he holds politically are more, or ideologically, are more 
uh, akin to Barack Obama. In my opinion, that is not the direction to go. I feel like as the days go on, he's starting to understand that less and less. I mean, from when he announced his campaign till now, he's sort of been put into an echo chamber of the elite, which has sort of changed the direction his campaign is going. I still think he is the arguably the most strong candidate that exists right now, uh, but he was a much stronger candidate three months, maybe even one month ago than he is today. The best thing that he has going for him, in my opinion, in terms of policy, is his Medicare policy. So, uh, the reason his Medicare policy is the best out of uh, anyone, any presidential candidate in the Democratic field right now, is because Bernie Sanders' plan, who's sort of the front runner next to Buttigieg, at least in this Iowa caucus's plan, costs about $34 trillion over 10 years. Buttigieg is $1.5 trillion over 10 years. And you're not forced to go on to uh, Buttigieg, uh, to Judge's plan, because it's Medicare for all who want it, not Medicare for all, like Bernie Sanders has. So you have more of a choice, and it's cheaper, right? I mean, what, it's like, Bernie Sanders, you have absolutely no choice, and it's really expensive, whereas Buttigieg's, you have a choice, and it's less expensive. So which one are you going to pick? I mean, in anything, not just Medicare, in literally anything in the world. Probably going to go with Judge on that one, just like the majority of the earth should. Buttigieg also made a very uh, good but scripted argument for why he, a candidate with such little experience compared to his same party rivals, uh, would be a good candidate, proved to be a viable president. He, he made this argument at the most recent Democratic debate on ABC. He said, Look, I, I freely admit that if you're looking for the person with the most years of Washington establishment experience under their belt, you've got your candidate, and of, of course it's not me. The perspective I'm bringing is that of somebody whose life has been shaped by the decisions that are made in those big white buildings in Washington, D.C. Somebody who has guided a community written off as dying just a decade ago through a historic transformation. Somebody who knows what it means to be sent to war on orders that come out of the Situation Room. We need a perspective right now that will finally allow us to leave the politics of the past in the past. Okay, so so that is a really, really good argument, and it's incredibly scripted, obviously. He knew that he was going to be attacked, and he sort of has to come up with a new a new argument every time when they attack him on how little experience it was. First, it was the George W. Bush argument about how I have more military experience than anyone to walk into that office, XYZ, and all that, and now he's talking about this, so good but scripted argument there. And the reason Buttigieg is winning right now in the all-caucuses is because there seems to be this 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 misconception about the 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 spread of wealth in this country. It is generally the way that candidates, especially extremely progressive ones like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they seem to think that that in this country there are the uh, really really poor, super super in, impoverished uh, communities, and then there are the mega rich multi billionaires that have all the money. That seems to be, they, they think it's binary. They think it's one's mega rich and one's mega poor. When that is just not the case. Wealth is a huge spectrum in this country. And the majority of the people who are of, of the voting population have an income at least between $30,000 and $150,000. That is the general makeup of income within this country. So if you want to win the office, you need to appeal to those people dramatically. You don't need to appeal to billionaires, and you certainly do not. You certainly don't need to appeal to billionaires, and you do not need to appeal to uh, impoverished communities either, because they make up a smaller vo- voting population. It's just like you. Don't, I mean, a rich person's vote cost is is just the amount the, the same, you know, uh, weight as a, as someone who is not rich. So, 
you know, appealing to such, you know, hating on each side so much just does not work whatsoever. And that is why Buttigieg is winning, because he's appealing to the middle class, the large chunk of this country, who just wants things to go back to normal again, and not be radically progressive, not be radically, uh, you know, conservative. And that's why he's winning right now, because, you know, the only reason Sanders is so high up there is because he's cultivated such a movement, and it's been going on for the past 40 years. Bernie Sanders has, un, I mean, unquestionably, he has been the most consistent probably person who serves in Congress right now, and certainly the most consistent out of the people who are running against him in the presidential race. For I mean, you know, Elizabeth Warren was a Republican up until the 90s, and now she's claiming to be this ultra-leftist progressive, you know, drone. So yes, that's where Mr. Buttigieg stands. It's been quite the interesting week, particularly for the theoretically most electable candidate, Mr. Joseph R. Biden Jr. He's pulling fourth in the Iowa caucus, minimal support in New Hampshire so far, and his campaign is evidently going crazy. They're scrambling over about these lower than expected uh, numbers and apparent lack of traction. So uh, right now what's happening is basically, as Politico puts it, while the full Iowa caucus results still aren't in, Biden's unexpectedly weak performance Monday has provoked frustration and recriminations within the campaign, according to interviews with more than a dozen campaign aides and surrogates. So, outside the campaign, Biden's Iowa train wreck revived questions about the durability of his candidacy and threatened to slow a fundraising operation that was already showing signs of stress, according to uh, Miss Natasha Karecki over at Politico. Um, so, Biden is basically not doing well at all in these caucuses, and it is incredibly, uh, I mean, Biden knows this very, very well. He actually has admitted it many times. It was a really, really, really well done thing, in my opinion, to admit it. Here is him basically saying that he's not going to sugarcoat it. He took a gut punch in Iowa. I am not going to sugarcoat it. We took a gut punch in Iowa. The whole process took a gut punch, but look, uh, this isn't the first time in my life I've been knocked down. Okay, so, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, he turns everything into a positive. So, but I do think that his admitting of that fact that he did take a gut punch, not trying to spin it like Trump. I mean, if this happened to Trump, Trump would say that this entire thing is rigged, that we, you know, that there's a, there's a mobilized institutional establishment-based effort to kill me, right? That is what Trump would say. Joe Biden, very well, very, you know, I mean, extremely uh, respectfully put, that he took a gun punch in Iowa, that he did, not the system, not the system is attacking him, that he actually is responsible for this gut punch, even though his campaign is basically going nuts, figuring out why this happened, how this happened, and the reason that they are going nuts, and the reason that they have sort of, were so blindsided by this, by this revelation, is because, just like Hillary Clinton in the 2016 race, were way too cocky about how they're going to come in, how they're easily going to win, how they have so much experience, how they're going to be the next, you know, the next institutional uh, establishment-based party candidate, when the reality is, is that what this country is looking for, clearly, as they elected Donald, as this country has elected Donald Trump, they're not looking for an establishment politician anymore. They really are not. And that is why Buttigieg is surging, that is why Sanders is surging, and that is why Biden got fourth and Hillary did not win. It makes sense, though, that uh, Joe Biden would admit it. I actually half agree with the argument that the guy's time has passed, generally Joe Biden's, uh, but let's just say 
and I'm saying this based off of other facts and policies as well, that I wouldn't necessarily be uncomfortable with Biden in the office, certainly compared to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. I mean, if you want to hear my long criticisms of these fine individuals, I recommend going to j-story.com and clicking on episode number 120 of the podcast if you have not done so already. Uh, but the most important thing that Biden can do right now is hold on to the minority vote that he has because Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are going to swoop in and eat little chunks of the black and brown vote closer to the election. Now, Pete Buttigieg is probably going to probably the most white, the most white politician running for president, both in terms of character and in support. He's clearly the candidate of the middle and upper class, but from you know, Democrats I'm speaking of. Uh, but from what we know so far, Buttigieg is leading in Iowa, and a similar outcome seems to be possible in, in New Hampshire as well. So if Buttigieg uh, wins New Hampshire and actually starts to look like he could be the nominee, then voters will start to either flock towards Biden or Bernie, the ones that don't like that the ones that don't like Buttigieg. There's a lot of B's here, uh, because there needs to be a strong opposition with committed voter bases. And if there is no one, if there's one really really strong thing that Bernie Sanders has, it is his supporters and their ideologies. So, uh, I mean, if anyone's going to come. At, out of this, it'll probably be Biden, or sorry, it'll probably be Buttigieg, Biden, and Sanders. So, uh, that that's where it stands in terms of viability. However, if it goes that way, uh, it goes the way that the, that would be probably more preferable to me and to the DNC, Biden will trail Buttigieg slightly in New Hampshire, they will fight over demographics, and then one of them will end up winning. Um, and right now, it's really not going well for Biden. Clearly, with the results of Iowa, it's not good. He's not doing well in New Hampshire so far, and according to the Washington Post, he was just totally missing from his New Hampshire campaign. They say out of Nashua, New Hampshire, outside the castle-themed Radisson Hotel where Joe Biden has been staying, his campaign bus was parked and ready for events, but on Thursday, just five days before the crucial primary here, the candidate was nowhere to be find, found. Sorry. Biden spent Thursday gathered with his top advisors at his home in Wilmington, Delaware, to seeking a reset and perhaps a last-ditch effort to save his candidacy, beginning with the debate Friday night. He held no public events. In one troublesome sign from the financially strapped campaign, it canceled nearly $150,000 in television ads in South Carolina, which votes February 29th, and moved the spending to Nevada, whose February 22nd contest follows New Hampshire's. The move seemed to acknowledge that Biden's campaign cannot sustain a continued run of bad news. So, I mean, the guy is basically scrambling with, along with his fellow senior staff to try and be like, what the heck happened? I mean, there's been reaction. There's a fabulous article in uh, Politico that's titled, The Biden Campaign Agonizes Over Iowa Shellacking. Or shellacking, I should say. I don't know. I mean, you can pronounce it however you want. Um... But that is really where it stands. And 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 Biden, again, too cocky. He came into this saying, look, I'm the vice president. I have 30 years of experience. I blah, blah, blah. And, and that just doesn't work. Having experience, seeing those numbers just doesn't work. I think his policy, the way he's approached advertising so far, the minimal ones that he's been... I mean, he's making a lot of ads, but they're not really airing anywhere. Bloomberg has basically dominated 90, 95% of... Uh, you know, uh, ad revenue in terms of YouTube, in terms of TV commercials. I mean, Bloomberg, because he has all the money, is is dominating it. And he's not doing well at all. I mean, he didn't even qualify for the Iowa caucuses. He's just below 2% in the, the, the latest national polls, and I'm citing the best ones for him. So very, very little support, again, for, for uh, Bloomberg. And that's probably just because he's a billionaire and he's spending tons of money. 
And a lot of people are also committed to uh, the top four, Warren, Sanders, Biden, and Buttigieg. Circling back to Buttigieg and Biden, the, the two were fighting so much this morning on all the Sunday shows, not directly, but indirectly. They, they talked about who attacked who and on what, and most of it actually stems from Biden attacking Buttigieg on experience and then Buttigieg having to defend himself. But before any of that, this ad was released by Joe Biden, and it is by far my, my favorite ad of 2020 and arguably the funniest ad of 2020, 2020 regardless of uh, who you support. When President Obama called on him, Joe Biden helped lead the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which gave health care to 20 million people. And when parkgoers called on Pete Buttigieg, he installed decorative lights under bridges, giving citizens of South Bend colorfully illuminated rivers. Both Vice President Biden and former funny. Mayor Buttigieg have taken on tough fights. Under threat of a nuclear Iran, Joe Biden helped to negotiate the Iran deal. And under threat of disappearing pets, Buttigieg negotiated negotiated lighter licensing regulations on pet chip scammers. Okay, so that's sort of funny. On the Sunday shows, uh, Biden who has been attacking Buttigieg, even though Biden claims it is the other way around. But Biden said that Pete Buttigieg is no Barack Obama because analysts have compared the two on their demeanor and their experience being similar when ideologically Biden would be probably more akin to Obama. Here is what Obama said about Buttigieg not being a Barack Obama. Who was uh, criticized in this very way. And that's uh, Jeff Zeleny uh, asking Biden a question. Hillary Clinton said, Barack Obama, you don't have the experience to be president. He went on to be president. Is this a act of desperation on your campaign to be oh, making on, this assertion right now guys, of Mayor Buttigieg? He's not a Barack Obama. So I think Biden was trying to maybe have a, a you no Jack Kennedy moment in answering that question. Or uh, at least that's how the media is trying to spin it. Uh, so, I mean, that that's what they're trying to do with this statement, but it did not sound like that at all, in my uh, humble, humble opinion. Uh, I think that it did not sound like the moment that we all know very well, I mean, at least I know from the archives very well, of uh, the You're No Jack Kennedy moment. Here, here's what that sounded like. It is not just age, it's accomplishments, it's experience. I have far more experience than many others that sought the office of vice president of this country. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. I will be prepared to deal with the people in the Bush administration if that unfortunate event would ever occur. Senator Benson. Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. Okay, so that's sort of, I mean, that was a phenomenal moment in, in uh, American political history. But the reason that attack did not work with Biden and Buttigieg, with Biden basically saying that this guy's no Barack Obama, uh, referring to Buttigieg, is because Buttigieg was claiming to be the ne- is not claiming to be the next Barack Obama. He's not, he's, I mean, this guy, Dan Quayle, in that interview with Lloyd, or that, that debate with Lloyd Benson, is literally saying that I have more experience than Jack Kennedy, I can be Jack Kennedy, I will be similar to Jack Kennedy, I will replace the Bush administration, I will do this, I will do that. Buttigieg is not saying that at all. He's saying actually the opposite. In the Kennedy audio, you heard literally him citing his experience. And Lloyd Benson was able to hit back with that one-liner because of how because of how braggadocious and stupid his uh, Dan Quayle's remarks were about how he, he has similar experience and a friendship with a very prominent political figure. 
and saying that he's actually better than him by saying that he has more experience. Buttigieg, on the other hand, still to this day, does not claim that he wants to be associated or likened to Barack Obama in any way, which is, in my opinion, a big step that Buttigieg is trying to take in order to appear more progressive than moderate, which is not a good uh, thing in my mind, because if you look at the statistics, even though the, the leftists, the radicals, appear on the TV, the majority of this country is not radical. They are not left. Anyone, no matter what side, literally left or right, they are more closer to center than what the media is trying to portray and what many institutions are trying to portray. In fact, Buttigieg reinforced the fact that he is not a big Obama fan nor wants to be like Obama uh, when he appeared on Jake Tapper's State of the Union show this morning on CNN. After CNN's Jeff Zeleny pointed out that Biden made a similar inexperience attack on Barack Obama uh, in the 2008 presidential race, former Vice President Biden replied, quote, this guy's not a Barack Obama. What do you think of that? Well, he's right. I'm not. And neither is he. Neither is any of us running for president. And this isn't 2008. It's, it's 2020. See, because Buttigieg has the leverage there. Dan Quayle in that clip did not have the leverage. Buttigieg never claimed to be like Barack Obama, so he can easily walk back a statement that he didn't even make. Whereas Dan Quayle literally just said that was not called for. You know, I mean, you know, just ridiculous. So... Uh, wholesomely, technically at this point, Bernie Sanders is by virtue of attacking Buttigieg about big money donors and maintaining his unusually strong voter base, is he's theoretically going to be their nominee because Pete has no minority support. I hope that Pete Buttigieg is able to cultivate that minority support because I do think that he is an incredibly gifted and talented politician and I think he would be a phenomenal president. I think his policies are the best, but I do think that uh, as of right now, Sanders and Biden are the, uh, I mean, you know, assuming Biden steps it up a little bit, they're they're technically the most viable candidates. Joe Biden uh, continues to snore until his campaign got gut punched in Iowa at the Iowa caucus. So now they're pontificating as I speak fervently about uh, with no connection to the public and uh, how they're going to solve this problem. Elizabeth Warren has sort of rendered herself irrelevant, clearly, with the comments about Bernie Sanders. Amy Klobuchar is so good, but just not out there enough. And Michael Bloomberg continues to just spend, spend, spend. Andrew Yang was so good. And Tom Steyer is just sort of out there. Overall, though, right now, at this point, right after the State of the Union address, right after Trump being acquitted, right after Trump having surging poll numbers and approval ratings, I do think that no matter who the nominee is, that Donald Trump will be reelected as of right now. And I could be totally wrong on that, but I do think that that people uh, are getting really, really tired of the far left and the far right. And, you know, if the economy continues to do well and Trump's approval ratings continue to go up, then Donald Trump will likely be reelected. Uh, and that would be a very huge moral, uh, you know, failure for this country, but... I mean, people really only care, at the end of the day, about the economy and, in some cases, the social fabric if it gets way too extreme, and equality, of course. So if, the, if they have those things, and if and in a pure political level, and, and also taxes, I mean, Trump does not write any of his policy, does not write any of his speeches, the only thing he writes and does are his tweets, and that is what brings his approval ratings down, that, and also when he goes off script. It is basically nothing else. If he were to stay on script, he would basically be the equivalent of modern-day Ronald Reagan, probably, 
And if he were to, and, and his policy is like very traditional, conservative, fiscal policy that has worked for the Republican Party for many, many years before. But it's his rhetoric that is bringing down his poll numbers. So if he were, to, and, and I understand the argument that he has that saying, I wouldn't be able to get my message out if I didn't have Twitter and I didn't have this and that. But if I'm just, I, I want to give an, an advice, a piece of advice to the president. Your approval ratings would probably jump 10% in the next five months if you literally just stopped using Twitter. All right, that, that's, that's where I'm going to end it right now on the Jay Doherty Podcast. Uh, we're going to close out here with the song called Dawn by Mark Vard. We appreciate your listenership to this fine episode. You can see show notes and episode highlights at j-doherty.com, clips and highlights at thedohertyfiles.com. We appreciate you listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, please consider subscribing if you have not done so already. I don't ask very often, but I do want to just pointed out that there is a subscribe button if you appreciate this content you want to keep listening share it with people let me know how you think about it and uh, what you think about it j-40.com is the website for complete show notes and an episode outline thank you so much for listening to this fine episode of the podcast it's sunday february 9th 2020 12 as we close out the podcast 48 minutes in thank you so much for listening to episode number 120 of the j Doherty podcast The Jay Doherty Podcast is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by Jay Doherty. The Jay Doherty Podcast is a JD Media Network production. Copyright Jay Doherty 2020. Make sure to listen to other JD Media Network productions like the JDRC Politics Podcast for discussions on international politics or the Weekly File Podcast for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-doherty.com or view archive clips and show highlights at thedohertyfiles.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jay Doherty Podcast. For all the latest world and national news on technology, politics, and more, listen live to the Jay Doherty Podcast on j-doherty.com.